This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code STUFF at checkout and get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You smell that, Josh? That's the smell of the Pacific Northwest. It's the smell of spring. Oh, yeah, that. That's where I was headed. Okay. So we are launching our Spring Has Sprung Tour and uh, other dates TBD, but we know we are starting in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, like I said, which is what smells. Like patchouli and liberalism. And uh, pine. <laughs> uh, where are we going? Seattle and Portland, right? On Friday, April 8th, we're going to be in Seattle. At the Neptune. Which we were at last time. It was a great venue. Great venue. The next day, we're going to be in Portland mm-hmm. at Revolution Hall. New That's venue right. for us. New venue for us. And uh, we are going back there because two reasons. You both treated us so well last time. Uh-huh. And we have a very special podcast tailor-made for your neck of the woods. That's right. So come see us. You can get tickets on SYSKlive.com, our website powered by Squarespace. That's right. And uh, we'll see you guys April 8th and 9th. Come on out, Pacific Northwest. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and there's Jerry over there, and there's some delicious Ritz crackers with peanut butter dipped in white chocolate, <laughs> Yeah, which means this is stuff you should know. Yummy cookies. Yes. Uh, but we're not going to say who sent them just yet, because that'll fall under administrative, administrative details. details. Which, right. by the way, while we're mentioning it, thanks again to Mark Henry. We're pretty sure we thanked for the awesome steel work that we got at the Pittsburgh show. Yeah. Steel sign, steel and barn work. Right, exactly. I thought we thanked him, but if I we didn't, so too, I want to make sure we did for sure because it hangs right here above our heads proudly. It it looms uh, intimidatingly over our heads. <laughs> <laughs> Are you intimidated by it? No, I'm a little under the weather though. Can you tell? I can, yeah. Mostly because you said so. But yeah. now that now that I'm listening for it, I can hear it. Sort of that. It's like you got a stick of butter in each nostril. Yeah. Oh man, I wish. Do you? You can do that. <laughs> How are you? I'm good? doing okay. I'm not under the weather. That's good. Um, I am nice and warm here in Atlanta. It's like 70 degrees outside here yeah. on like March 1st. Yeah. Um, kind of, well, I want to say the opposite, but not necessarily these days, thanks to climate change. <laughs> um, in Alaska. All right, Leo DiCaprio. We're there. <laughs> I thought that was a great speech. It was fantastic. Nailed it. The guy should be an actor. <laughs> Uh, in Alaska, where they're about to do the Iditarod, they're about to run it. As a matter of fact, when this comes out, it will have started a couple of days before, right? Oh, yeah. So we'll be like right smack dab in the middle of what's called the last great race on Earth, the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race, <laughs> also known as just the Iditarod. Or the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race. <laughs> Did I say dog sled? No, you said it, but you just put the emphasis on the... Weird words. Or the Iditarod trail sled dog race. Exactly. We could do this several more times. Uh, we could. So uh, let's get into this. I'm going to, we're, we're probably both going <clears> to <throat> say poopy things about dog racing, aren't we? Probably, yeah. I'm, I'm just waiting for people in Alaska to be mad at me. It's going to be years before they get their hands on this episode. Yeah, probably so, because you have to fly it out. <laughs> You have to drop it in the you have cassette to fly player. the one iPod from town to town, and everybody has to get their turn listening to it. 
Yeah. Uh, one thing I learned about people from Alaska is the reason they live in Alaska is because they don't like being told what to do by anybody. No, they don't. They don't like getting pushed around. No, so they moved to Alaska where you can do as you please. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll see where this one goes. So the Iditarod, for those of you who don't know, is actually a, a, a grueling endurance race across some of the coldest parts of the planet. Sure. Uh, a, over, a, over 1,100 miles yes. total. That's a long way. And it's not like uh, people are running or snowshoeing or hang gliding. They are on a little sled. Yeah. Uh, on skis. You could also call it a mini sleigh if you wanted to. Okay. And this, these mini sleighs are pulled by teams of dogs. And that's the race. It's a dog sled race. That's Sorry, right. Dog sled race. Uh, held every year since 1973. And, uh, there is no, like set number of participants, it kind of varies from year to year, right? Depending on how many people want to take part, and uh, like you said, it's rough terrain. It's cold, brutal conditions. Could be anywhere from it could go down to fifty below zero. That's with, insane. With harsh winds and uh, blinding snow, snow blinds. Is that what it's called? That's what Ozzy called it. Oh, really? Yeah. Don't you remember the song Snowblind? Mm, yeah, I think so. Great Black Sabbath song. I don't think he was talking about snow, though. Probably not. You know what I mean? Oh, was he talking about cocaine? <clears throat> I think he may have been. Oh, I never thought about that. So, uh, Chuck, you said like up to 50 below. I saw 60 below Fahrenheit. 60 below zero Fahrenheit. That's cold. But I also kept running across people saying like negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And I remember we said that once when we were talking about Simo Haya. The uh, oh, Finnish yeah. sniper. Yeah, yeah. Who's like the baddest dude ever. Uh-huh. The white ghost or something? Something like that. The white death. White death, yeah. I think that was it. Man, that guy is crazy. Anyway, um, and we mentioned that he was out sniping people in, in temperatures as cold as negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And ever since then, people wrote in and said, dude, it's negative 40 degrees is the same in Celsius and Fahrenheit. It's where they converge. Wow. And ever since then, I've always noticed... There's very few people who realize that. Yeah. Oh, well, I forgot. Negative 40 degrees. You don't have to say Fahrenheit or Celsius. It's amazing. <laughs> it's it's, it's the magic temperature. Things are so cold, no one gives a crap. Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so the route for the Iditarod, um, there are a couple of different routes depending on what year it is. Uh, this would be an even year, 2016. Yeah. So that means they're going to follow the northern route. Uh, last year, and every odd year, they have a southern route. And uh, they are basically the same route except for 300 miles in the middle where it's different. Yeah, b- between Ophir and uh, Unkalit, I believe. <laughs> Unkalit? I think so. Um, and it either shoots up or dips down, depending. Yeah. But it, other than that, it's the same exact route. Yeah, there are 26 checkpoints along the way on the northern route and then 27 on the southern route. Right. Because you need just that one extra. Well, the southern route. I think, didn't it say the southern route's a little harder? Uh, yeah, I think the general thought is the northern trail is a little easier, but I, like I, the, I think there's a difference in terrain typically. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And you would think, okay, this is a thousand mile plus trek across snow in negative 50, 60 degree Fahrenheit weather. Um, it's going to take forever, right? And as a matter of fact, think? the first one in 1973 did take, I think, the last place finisher more than 30 days to complete the race. Yeah. Nowadays, they're doing these things in like eight 
and change. Yeah, the the record. The first Iditarod was like 20 days and change for the winter. For the winter, right? And now the the record is a guy named John Baker in 2011 finished it, so that would be a southern route, even even more difficult. Uh, in eight days, 18 hours, 46 minutes, and 39 seconds. I saw more recently a guy named Dallas Seavey, who's part of like an Iditarod family. Uh-huh. Um, in 2014, he broke that record by oh, a did? few hours. Eight, eight days, 13 hours, four minutes, and 19 seconds. Oh, I thought uh, Baker was a guy. <laughs> no, and Baker, I guess, toppled another guy named Martin Booser, who um, he uh, he had the record for a little while. But yeah, it, it went from like... What'd you say, 20, 20 days for the winter in 1973? Yeah, 20 And plus. now it's like just over a week. And within that week is a forced 24-hour furlough. So technically they might be able to do it in a week if they really tried. Yeah, 24 hours plus two eight-hour breaks. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, I bet if it was up to the mushers, they would press on. Yes, because aside from those enforced breaks, they do typically press on. Um, they'll stop every once in a while, like feed the dogs or something like that. But for the most part, they're not sleeping. They're staying awake and they're just pushing forward. So they get sleep deprivation. They start to hallucinate. Um, I read this really great New Yorker article called The White Wall. Yeah. Where, um, the light from your headlamp, because you're traveling at night. Sure. Most of the time. Um, the light from your headlamp is, is, uh, reflecting off of the fur around your parka and it creates this kind of white screen in your field of vision and it's like ripe for hallucinations. Wow. So you just start to go a little batty. Yeah, for sure. I saw where this one uh, lady who, uh, uh, was a musher said that she slept while she was riding. Oh yeah. That's what she said. She just taught herself to kind of hang on and I guess. nod off. Or maybe she just thought she was sleeping. Yeah, that's possible too. And, uh, you know, was freaking out. On, on the snow blind. So we should mention mush. Apparently no one says mush anymore. Oh, as far as like the lingo? Yeah. Now they say like hike or all right or let's go. But mush originally meant like start going. Yeah, it's a uh, French from uh, mar- marchand or marsh. Yes, marsh. And uh, yeah, they still call them mushers. Yeah. It's a funny name. But apparently the mushers don't use the word mush when they're... As far as like their command. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So you want to talk about the history of this sport, this endurance sport? Because the, the, there's really no way around it. The dogs are like peak perfor- – they're like LeBron James of, <laughs> of, of dogs. Yeah. All of them. But let's talk about the history of sled dogs, about the kind of dogs that are used for sled dogs. Like most people, including me, assume that if you were um, – riding around the snow on a sled being pulled by dogs, you're probably being pulled by Siberian Huskies. Maybe. Or Alaskan Malamutes. Yeah, or maybe a Samoyed. Yes. Perhaps. Thank you for being the one to say it. Why? Out loud. It's not the easiest one just looking at it to pronounce. Would you say Samoyed? Samoyed. Yeah. I watched the dog show the other day. That's why. I love that. They had... Who won? Uh, You know, I'd actually... Well, this is how old I am. I fell asleep before the <laughs> best in show. Okay. That's all right. Yeah. This is very fun watching As long it. as you enjoyed yourself watching it. I want to go one year. Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. I'll bet it is crazy, yeah. crazy partying. You think? The whole time. <laughs> no, I think it'd probably be a lot of fun to go see and cheer for dogs. Although I'm against dog breeding in general, so I probably shouldn't even go. Um. 
And but the uh, the what did you say the Samoyed, the Samoyed, and the uh, Alaskan Malamute and the Siberian Husky they are all AKC registered breeds. They're recognized by the American Kennel Club, and they used to pull sleds, especially Siberian Huskies. There was a guy named um, Leonard. Uh, oh man, I can't remember his name. Sapola, I believe, is what his name was. And he was the guy who first started racing Siberian Huskies in Alaska on sleds. But if you go to Alaska today, you're going to find something called an Alaskan Husky is typically the kind of dog that you're going to encounter as a sled dog. And this is like a mixed breed. It's a mutt breed. Yeah. Um, And they have been bred to just basically be mentally tough, physically sturdy, um, not too big, but also not too small. Uh The thick coat and... um, Double coat. Yes. And uh, not just quickness, but a strong, inbred desire to run and pull stuff while they're running. Yeah, I saw this one guy called it. Uh, it's like they have a wanderlust. Like there, there's always some place else they'd rather be. Right. Like they want to go, go, go over there. Yeah. Which, which is why, um, if when you're taking a break or something with your dogs uh, on the Iditarod, you have to chain them down, whereas they're like, see ya. Oh yeah, and they also microchip them as well. They're as a tough dogs. Of fact, now. I had a friend who had a husky, and um, they are not easy. And he, this husky would get out and see you later. Yeah, for like two days. Yeah, and he always came back, but he came back wearing like a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah, like I, a tiki I would, drink. I would freak if my dog got out because my dogs are big dummies. They wouldn't like, they wouldn't know how to come back. Was this a pretty smart dog? Yeah, I think husky, the Alaskan husky is pretty smart yeah. generally. So it was an Alaskan husky. I think so, yeah. So Alaskan Huskies are descended um, more from uh, dogs called Inuit dogs and Eskimo dogs, and they are basically indigenous dogs to Alaska. They came over with the first humans who crossed the uh, Bering Land Bridge, right? Yeah, the dogs pulled them across that bridge. Probably. <laughs> Not probably, they did. Oh, they did? Oh, yeah. So I saw that they didn't hook dogs up to sleds until like the, the um, this past m- millennia, or the one we're in now. That was like 8,800 or maybe 1,200 when they were using sleds. Oh, really? That's what I saw. Um, but I also saw that it goes back to time immemorial. Who knows? What I did see, though, is that these dogs, these Inuit dogs and the uh, Eskimo dogs, were um, definitely hauling stuff. Oh, yeah. Like whale carcasses sure. or huge parts of whale carcasses to be butchered back in town. Um, they were hunting dogs. They were companions. They were protector dogs. They were just total um, butt-kicking animals that could stand temperatures well into the negative 20s or 30s or 40s degree Fahrenheit. Because that double coat. Yes. So the outer coat, I think, deflects the snow, and then they have the inner coat that is waterproof. Right. And insulates them. Yeah. So when you see those dogs laying out in the snow, uh, they're not cold. Right. You know, don't think, oh, poor dog laying in the snow. I mean, there can be problems, as we talked about with the Iditarod, when that one dog was buried well, and that, asphyxiated. Yeah. Um, they but can also get frostbite. Not cold. They yeah. can get frostbite, though, depending. But, yeah, for the most part, which I don't understand, man. That's crazy. I was like, man, these checkpoints, they have, like, tents at the checkpoints. How how big are the tents? I mean, what if more than one team has to put their dogs in the tents? And I was like... They're not in the tents. No. <laughs> they sleep, the they put is. down They put down hay. They might have a, a bale of hay that the musher has. Yeah. Um, and the dogs sleep on the hay in the snow. 
And they cover their nose with their tails. They do. Which is adorable. And at kennels for these dogs, some of them, they'll have like plastic barrels cut in half. Yeah. With a little hole for the dog to get in and out of when weather's really bad. Yeah. But for the most part, yeah, um, especially if it's not snowing or windy, uh, a, a Inuit dog or an Alaskan husky can just sleep outside on the snow. Exactly. Uh, they used to deliver the mail in Alaska. Uh, in the late 1800s to early 1900s, that was exclusively how the mail was delivered uh, until the airplane became the primary mode of mail delivery. Yeah. Uh, and the last mail dog in Alaska retired in 1963. So uh, not too long ago. No. Pretty impressive. Yeah. Right before hippies. Yeah. The dog didn't, <laughs> didn't live to see hippies. Uh, the police used them. Uh, in the, in the gold rush of the late 1800s. And of course, Alaska aside, they have long been used in, uh, Arctic and Antarctic expeditions. Yeah, there was actually a very famous Antarctic expedition in Japan where I think in the 50s, yeah, 1958, uh, an Antarctic expedition had to be abandoned and the, um, Japanese researchers had to be evac'd. Yeah. By helicopter and they were like, Sorry, dogs. Well, somebody will be back in a few days. We're going to chain you up here. Here's some food. Good luck. Fight over it. A year later, a research team made it back to that outpost, and they found two of the dogs were still alive. Yeah. Uh, Taro and Jiro. And they were brothers, which makes it even more awesome. It's amazing. And they became national heroes back in Japan. Um, and the, I was like, well, yeah, of course, they ate the other dogs. I read an article that said that there were no signs of cannibalism. Oh, wow. That they just like like hunted penguins and seals and stuff like that and managed to survive. Wasn't that the basis of the Paul Walk- Walker movie? Paul Walker? The Fast and the Furious? Same guy. Uh, no longer with us, too. No. He died in that car wreck. Yeah. Uh, was he a passenger? He was the passenger in that car wreck, wasn't he? No, I think he drove. Okay. He did have a passenger. What was it called? Eight Below, right? Yeah, which is he's not Japanese. No, but he's he. It was supposedly him. I, I think it must have been based on that or something. I haven't seen the movie. I gotcha. I think they thought an updated version would uh, fare better. They're like, who does everyone like? Paul Walker. Exactly. Uh, they were used as uh, war dogs in World War One and World War Two, hauling equipment, search and rescue. Helped set up the Alaskan Telegraph line around World War One. Yeah. Um, and they also almost invaded Norway. From uh, the eastern coast of Canada. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they were attached to, like, the 15th Mountaineering Regiment of the United States Army, I think. Uh-huh. It would have been Army for sure. And um, we didn't invade Norway, but had we, these dogs would have been there with us. Wow. Yeah. And by us, I mean specifically you and me, Chuck. <laughs> right. Because we were in the 15th. Uh, so you said that they are bred for their, not only endurance, but for their for their speed mm-hmm. and they actually have their feet have adapted to uh take on this terrain because a good sledder is uh is that a sledder? Sure. Alright. Good sledder is has wide flat feet. But they also have toes that are dense and together. You don't want one with splayed toes because stuff can get in between them. Yeah. So basically they have like the they have feet like hammers, it sounds like. Hammer toes? Basically but hammer feet. Yeah, and the gender doesn't matter. Uh, lady, little lady dogs and mm-hmm. little boy dogs uh, are just as good uh, 
So gender isn't a big deal. Yeah. Um, they're also big at trail breaking, right? So like if you want to go out and see if the ice is thick enough to cross, take a team of sled dogs. Yeah. And they actually do this in Denali National Park. Yeah, and they do it ahead of the Iditarod. Mm-hmm. Uh, they send out teams to break the trails and make sure it's as safe as it can be. Right. And those trails, Chuck, were used for a very long time and still were. But then they started in like the 60s, say, maybe early 70s, to be um, blazed more by, by snowmobiles. And oh, this, yeah. this guy named Joe Reddington Sr. was really sad to, to see the, the dog sled, the traditional um, sled, being replaced by the snowmobile. These man-made machines. And he said, you know what? We need to preserve this heritage. I'm going to start a race in the in the uh, fashion of some of these old ones. There was this all-Alaska sweepstakes that was much shorter. But like in the 1900s, people were using sled dogs a lot and actually using them, but then they fell out of fashion. So this guy, Joe Reddington Sr., tried to preserve it by starting this race. Uh, yeah, Dorothy uh, Page, are they together or were they just uh, fellow they were, mushers? They were, they were kindred spirits. Okay, gotcha. So the first one they organized was a 50-mile race, right? Yeah, in like the 60s. I Not think. like the 1,100-mile journey <laughs> right. that it's grown into today. They really stepped it up. Yeah, and the, the sprints, they actually have sprint races. They have all different races. A sprint is a 30-mile sprint. Like just go flat out for 30 miles. 30 miles. That's insane. It is. So um, there's this very there's this uh, widely um, held misconception that the Iditarod was created to commemorate this um, this very famous run that happened in 1925, right? Yeah, the diphtheria outbreak. Right. Uh, they ran out of well, they needed to get medicine, and they used dogs to get medicine to the farthest reaches of Alaska. In like Nome, I think there was about to be a diphtheria outbreak. So that has nothing to do with it. Because that is all over the internet, yeah. including on the Iditarod site. No, if you look at the Iditarod site, it says specifically what Joe Reddington's aim was. Wow. Yeah. Um, no, I know. I saw that everywhere, including on our own How Stuff Works articles, that uh, people believe that they meant to commemorate it. And yes, this this incredibly courageous emergency rescue operation of bringing vaccine. Um, well, at least uh, antitoxin, I think is what it was, to the children of Nome before this outbreak killed them all. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it captured the world's imagination. Um, and it did follow the same route, half of it. But the first half was delivered by train. And um, the Iditarod Trail was starting to fall out of use by the time Joe Reddington and Dorothea Page came along and wanted to preserve it. So it, it's more coincidence than anything. They, they didn't... They didn't intentionally create the Iditarod to commemorate the diphtheria run from 1925. Uh, well, if you go to New York Central Park around 67th Street um, on the east side, you can see a statue of Balto the dog, who was the lead dog on that serum run. And so they said, we're going to commemorate this in New York. Yeah. Which I don't get, but Be- it seems like it would be in Alaska. Well, the reason why they did it there was because... Um, it, like the whole country was paying attention. Much of the world was paying attention to this. Yeah. This little tiny, this little tiny town up in Alaska was in real trouble. And this doctor had put all these telegraphs out, like asking for somebody to bring him something. And the closest stuff was in Anchorage. And, uh, since this trek took like five days, people were covering it for the, for the newspapers and people were reading about it all over the country. They got so jazzed up that New York was like, we're going to erect the statue of Balto. 
But that doesn't explain why New York. They just got just that got excited. excited, yeah. So that's the reason. <laughs> that's exactly why. <laughs> uh, so in the early 1990s, well, let's, let's take a break actually, and then we'll talk about the 90s. Okay. So in the early 90s, uh, as I was saying before, they started, there, there's a ceremonial kickoff they do now, uh, that's not a part of the actual race, so people can come out and cheer them on. In, in Anchorage, right? Yeah, so they have a big party, and people line the streets, and they get all the, apparently it's a crazy scene, cause, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dogs. And these dogs, I will say, I mean, we'll get to the, the downside, which is pretty grotesque, if you ask me. But these dogs want to work, and they want to they want to pull this sled. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if they want to pull it eleven hundred miles, right. <laughs> but they are sled dogs. And so when you get these these highly energetic, uh, well, they're all kinds of breeds, but mostly the Alaskan Husky is what they prefer. Uh, mushers prefer. Um, it's a crazy scene because they're not like they're not, they're not your average lap dog, right? They're excited and they howl. Yeah. They have very shrill howls, a lot of them do. Yeah, unless they had their voice box removed by their musher. Which is a thing. It, it can be. Um, so they kick off in Anchorage, and the reason why it's just a ceremonial kickoff is because there's usually not enough snow these days in Anchorage. Again, climate change. Yeah. So they used to go up to Wasilla, or Wasilla. I don't know how they pronounce it up there. Wasilla. Is it Wasilla? Yeah, that's Sarah Palin's. I know. I don't remember oh, okay. back then. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, and uh, then they stopped getting enough reliable snow there, so they had to move it up even further to Willow. Villa? So now Willow, yeah, Villow, <laughs> Vilva, Villov, um, is like two and a half hours north of Anchorage. They always have snow there. That's their motto. Right. So they, they have the ceremonial parade of the dogs the day before, and then the next day is when they start, and like the race officially starts. Yeah, and it costs a lot of money to... Uh to put on the race, and, and it's not cheap to be a musher with a sled team. I mean, you can put a, as much as like twenty grand into your sled team, yeah. Uh, and the training, and it, you know, it takes a long time. So some of these mushers have corporate sponsors. Uh, but you can make money too, like um, owning a kennel and leasing dogs out to other Iditarod contestants. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I think corporate sponsorships definitely help quite a bit. Well, a lot of corporations have stepped away from it, though, in recent years as far as sponsoring the race um, because of all the controversy surrounding it, which we will still get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got to be 18. You can't just be some uh, dumb 14-year-old. Or even a 17-year-old. Not even 17 and a half. You got to be 18, and you have to have completed uh, some other qualifying races and placed, I mean, we can get specific if you want. Uh, a Yukon Quest International Sled Dog Race or two approved races, and you have to have at least 500 miles uh, under your belt on those races and have finished in the top 75%. Or it says here, mind-bendingly, another way to qualify for an Iditarod race is to have been in a previous Iditarod race, which I guess... Yeah, I don't get that. <laughs> once you, I guess once you're in your first one, then you're qualified, but... Are, are you sure it wasn't like if you've won... Then you get like a lifetime no, I don't think exemption because so. that's what golfers do. Is that right? Well, some of them, some of the PGA events, if you win that event, then 
You're automatically next, in for the rest of your life? Maybe not the rest of your life, but I think for like the next five years or so. It depends on the oh, event. Oh, yeah? Then you get automatically qualified. That makes sense. Sure. All right. So what's uh, what's what does a sled team look like? They look pretty good. You got your musher? That's the guy standing on back telling the dogs what to do. Or the lady. Yes, that's right. Um, I'm a, a gender-neutral guy. Sure. Um, and then you have a team of dogs, and depending on what you're doing, um, with the Iditarod in particular, you have to start, I think, with 16 dogs, right? Yes. And you have to finish with 12. No, 12 to 16, and then you have to finish with 10. So you can have up to six dogs die along the way and not get disqualified from the Iditarod, technically. Technically, right? yeah. Um, <clears throat> and in the lead are the very appropriate named lead dogs. Yeah. These are your smartest, fastest dogs. I was reading about these dogs. These dogs are amazing dogs. Yeah, so smart that they will even disobey their owner if they're like, dude, that's a cliff. Right. Don't uh, tell me to mush. I know you can't see because you're snow blind in the Aussie fashion. Yeah. So just leave it to me to ignore your command and steer us to the left. And so when that lead dog starts to go, the dog's immediately behind them. The yeah. point dogs or the, uh, what are they called? Uh, the swing dogs. They also are called point too, I think. They're the ones who actually get the rest of the team to turn with them. Yeah. And they, uh, they call them swings because, you know, you have to, you can't cut it short. You got to swing wide around obstacles. Right. And these dogs are smart enough to know to do that. So you've got, those are the first four dogs you have are the lead dogs and the swing or point dogs. Behind them, you're going to have a couple of pairs of what are called team dogs. Yeah. These dogs are just really good at pulling, working well with others. Yeah. They're like, uh, the, the, the role player on the NBA bench. Yeah. They're the, um, solid basketball players. They're the Draymond Greens. But, Sure, yeah. but, but they're not going to be starting an all-star game. No, but they they uh, they may have enough spunk and spirit to get the rest of the team going. Yeah, um, yeah, they're the Draymond Greens. Exactly. Uh, and then at the very back, right in front of the sled, are the wheels, the wheelers. Yes, and they are the strongest of the bunch, supposedly. And uh, those are the dogs. But the dogs are attached to the sled. Yes. Or else you're in big trouble. You have a bunch of really fast dogs running together and a musher who's left behind. How funny would that be? It, it'd be funny to everybody else but the musher, I yes. think. And um, the sled connects to the dogs through the main line or the tow line, right? Yes. Or the gang line, I think, is the other name for it. And this is basically just a line that goes from the sled all the way up to the lead dogs. And all the dogs are connected to this thing. That's right. Then the dogs are connected to the lead line. And they pull on that tow line via tug lines that are connected to their harnesses. That's right. Uh, and the dog is wearing a collar and a harness. Mm -hmm. um, they don't actually, it's not like a, they don't have reins like a horse. Right. Uh, they go on command. Um, I have seen like a, a whip. They stopped using whips in okay. the Iditara, but they used to fairly recently. Gotcha. Yeah, they go mush, whoosh. No, no mush. More no more mush, no more whips. Right. Things are changing. Oh, big time, as a matter of fact. Um, and then you have the, so the dog's collar is, con is connected by a collar line, I think, right? Yes. So, uh, you have to condition these dogs, you know, they don't come out of the, uh, the womb ready to run a thousand miles. Yeah. I mean, they, they might got want some, to. Yeah. They've got some genetics going on for sure, but Absolutely. they definitely take some shaping as well. Uh, but you have to condition them, uh, over time. Uh, from the time they're little pups to start them out wearing the collar and mm -hmm. the harness to get used to it, to yeah. 
pulling little light things around the house. Oh, but that's adorable. Uh, yeah. Um, to building up their endurance and their, and their strength over time. Right. Just like, you know, any endurance race. If you're a marathoner, the same deal. You don't go out and run 26 miles. And you also have to be, um, you have to understand, um, verbal commands. Obscure ones too. Like hike. Not mush though. No one says mush to a dog. Hike. Let's go. All right. All, all those mean let's let's go, right? Yeah, I think that's how they say it. Uh, easy, if you want to slow down. Uh, and we couldn't decide, is it G? I think it's G. I say G. I think it's G. Come G, or come haw, to go left or right. Haw is definitely haw. Yeah, that's I agree it. That with you on easy. that one. Uh, straight on. Yeah. And then, whoa, if you're going to stop. That makes sense. It's like with a horse. And imagine straight on means... Keep on going. They also definitely need to learn to work together, which is not necessarily in every breed of dogs' makeup. No. You know, dogs have alpha dogs and they're pack dogs, and you have a lead dog that, that lead dog can fulfill that role, but you also want dogs that can, that aren't like constantly jockeying for position, that they know their place and they're willing to work together with the other dogs. Yeah, temperament's a big deal. For sure. And then um, you also, when you're running the Iditarod and you're putting a, a sled team together, you ha- you want to pick dogs of uh, similar build, similar gait, and speed. Yeah. You want them to basically move as one. Yeah. And so a lot of the, the selection in your dogs that you put together for a team is going to have a huge impact on that. Yeah, like how they pair well together. Right. That makes sense. But not, and not just temperamentally, but physically and in the way that they move as well. Yeah. And the dogs, uh, they can be big. Um, but generally I think for the endurance races, you want a dog that's between like 40 and 60 pounds. And how old are they? Well, um, if you want to be a sled dog, you're probably at least two. But you would think, you know, like if you look at thoroughbred horse racing, yeah, those horses are retired by like age three, I think maybe four. These dogs will pull sleds and compete in like races uh, up until age 10. Yeah, not bad. And at, again, at Denali National Park, they get retired at age nine. Uh, they're eating a lot. Uh, they need to eat around 10,000 calories a day while they're doing these races. Uh, that's about 2,000 pounds of food per team. And uh, it's mostly just meat, but uh, they have this stuff. It's sort of like hiking the Appalachian Trail. They have it flown ahead and right. dropped off at all these checkpoints, so the food in your bourbon is waiting there when you get there. Yeah. There was a guy, um, man, what was his name? Mackey, Lance Mackey. He was like the, the number one Iditarod racer for several years. Yeah. And um, he was not well-liked among all Iditarod racers. Because he used to just do things like smoke pot, like while he was just riding along on the Iditarod Trail. I saw that drugs and alcohol was a thing with mushers. Um, yeah, I don't know if it how widespread it is, but well, it's like a well, marijuana is a banned substance now. Even uh, apparently they're talking about legalizing it in Alaska, and the Iditarod committee is like, no, nope, still can't smoke pot, Lance Mackey. We're looking at you, right? Um, but apparently, according to this New Yorker article. Great New Yorker article, The White Wall. Check it out. Yeah, ESPN has a really good one, too. Um, they they said that he quit and did the did the race straight and still won once, I think. And then smoked tons of pot right afterwards. <laughs> to celebrate, yeah. <laughs> um, but the along this trail, um, you were saying that, that the dogs eat mostly meat. 
they eat different types of meat. They also eat like um, nutritional supplements. And in the white wall of the article, they describe what Dallas Devi's feeding his dogs at one stop. And he's, it's like a four-course meal. He starts yeah. with a, a broth um, with kibble and some nutritional supplements. Uh-huh. And then they eat some fish steaks. Yeah, And they have some beef. Delicious. And then they finish it all off with chicken skin, like all fat. That sounds delicious. Yeah, and the dogs are eating like ten to fourteen thousand calories yeah. a day, which is like ten times the caloric intake of an active dog of about the same size. Ten times. Oh yeah, just in a day. Yeah, well they're they're running like over a hundred miles a day. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, they're wearing little doggy booties now um, because it's very rough on their feet. Obviously, running over this ice and snow and. Uh, rough terrain, right. uh, and a team will go through as many as two thousand pairs, or two, it says two thousand booties, maybe a thousand pairs. Yeah, well, no, yeah, a thousand pairs. What do you call? Although, them? would it be a pair be four? Yeah, a dog pair would be four. I guess so. So five hundred dog pair. <laughs> we just created a new thing. It's like a baker's dozen. Uh, so two thousand booties they will go through. Um, but they're still going to get their feet beat up, their paws uh, beat up pretty bad. Well, yeah, because dogs perspire by panting and on the bottoms of their feet. Yeah. So you can't just wear um, booties all the time. So the, yeah. one of the mushers things that they really have to be paying attention to is a good time to, to give the dog's feet a rest without the booties to let them basically perspire so they don't overheat. Yeah, and I get the feeling that if they're really hauling and they see that they've lost a few booties... They're not like, oh, let me stop and put a fresh booty on. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, they're they're mushing forward. Sure. So, Chuck, let's take a break, um, and uh, we'll come back and talk about some other stuff. Stuff you should know. Stuff you should know. All right, we've talked about dogs. We've talked a little bit about mushers, but uh, one thing that makes a good musher is, uh, granted, they are standing. They're not running. <clears throat> well, sometimes they're running along, but they're, yeah, basically, no, they, they're, they're, they're usually started to. standing. Yeah. Uh, but it's tough. It's not like, I, I get the feeling it's like if you've ever been snow skiing or water skiing, it's hard on your legs. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm just standing here taking a joy ride. Yeah, you have to it's stand tough. up over... Over bumpy terrain um, for hours and hours and hours, basically for eight days. Yeah. So you got to be strong and have a lot of stamina in your own self. You also have to put up with, again, you have to be yeah mentally tough. Uh, you have to put up with the hallucinations and um, not make really bad decisions while you're on the trail and yeah. uh, it's night and you haven't slept. Um, and uh, you also need to pack well. Yeah, you want to bring everything, it's sort of like backpacking, everything you need, but as light as you can make it. And you, there's actually stuff you have to bring. Sure. You, as part well, of the Iditarod. To, to survive, you got to have a sleeping bag. Sleeping bag, an axe, snowshoes, yeah. a little uh, cooking pot and fuel so you can boil water. Sure. Um, and then you also, um, most of them carry a gun. The Dallas CV guy said that he carries a three fifty seven with him. And he actually shot a moose with it that was charging him and his dogs. And is, this a, is this the stoner? No, oh, this okay. is uh, this is his longtime rival, the the young uh, upstart, the who, clean liver, whose father, the straight edge, um, was also a Iditarod 
winner from 2013, I think. It very much seems like a family thing. Yeah. I saw a lot of people with the same last names. Um, and then the, uh, the other big essential gear is the sled itself. Yeah. Which you, the, there's not like you don't go to the official Iditarod sled store and buy your sled and go, okay, I'm ready. You, you construct it yourself. Oh, really? Yeah, you definitely can. I'm sure there's sleds out there that you can buy. Sure. But you can also build them yourself. The Iditarod only requires that, quote, some type of sled or toboggan must be drawn. Right. So you want that to be light as well. Um, probably about 100 pounds empty, uh, more than twice that full. Yeah. Uh, plus your own human body. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, maybe drop a few pounds before the race. Sure. And again, I, I'm sorry to keep going to the same well, but the Dallas CV cat, the reason we I keep mentioning him is like he is really... Is he your hero? He's uh, he's fine. Okay. He's I don't know enough about him to know whether he's my hero or not, but he is... Definitely reshaped the um, Iditarod race um, with some of the stuff he's doing. One of the things he's doing is he's making Iditarod racers like more athletic. Um, like if they're going up a hill, he'll jump off of the runners and run behind the the sled rather wow. than just get a ride with the dogs, which of course increases your time, but it's also easier on the dogs. It's just you have to be not a tub. And you have to be able sure. to run up inclines for eight days when you need to, you know? Yeah, that's, that can't be fun. Running in the snow is not fun. No, but it, it helps you win. Yeah. And it's easier on your dogs. And if you win, you're going to get some dough. Uh, they split the money up. Um, you can actually finish in last place and still get some money. Um, but you're going to get, obviously, the, the, the grand prize winner will win a nice fat purse in the six-figure range. A really nice purse. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, then there are other little prizes along the way, like uh, field day at elementary school. If you reach the halfway point, <laughs> the first musher, uh, musher to go to the halfway point um, in odd number of years, it would be Iditarod itself. Mm-hmm. And then in Cripple, uh, in the even number of years, you're going to get yourself the GCI Dorothy Page Halfway Award. And three thousand dollars in gold nuggets. Gold nuggets. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Can you imagine every once in a while they're like, "We didn't have the gold nuggets, but here's three thousand dollars." I'd yeah. be like, "I want my gold nuggets." Yeah, three thousand dollars worth. And um, then you bite into it to check its <laughs> authenticity, and you call the guy who gives you dinner cookie. Yeah. Yeah, that's the Alaska way. Uh, what else? The top lead dog is going to take home the Lolly Medley Memorial Golden Harness Award. Of course. Everybody knows that. And then, um, there's other towns where if you're the first one to make it to, say, uh, Anvik or Ruby, um, you'll get a seven course meal and $3,501 bills because it just seems like more. Yeah. Not like gold nuggets, but $3,501 bills is pretty great. These uh, are almost like joke gifts. Yeah, well, Wells Fargo, which like is five thousand dollars in pennies, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, slows you down. Um, Wells Fargo, which is a, a one of the bigger, along with Exxon Mobil, the two biggest corporate sponsors of the Iditarod, yeah, offers the um, like a, a the Red Lantern Award, the last place finisher. Yeah, I think that's from the the widow's lamp. Uh, at the finish line, they have the widow's lamp, which is a a lamp that they leave burning until the last musher and team has crossed. Right. Uh, and that's from the old days from uh, they would keep a kerosene lamp burning for people that were still out there on the trails. Right. So, well, uh, Wells Fargo is the old-timey multinational yeah. bank. Look at their look at their 
homespun logo. Yeah. With the stagecoach and it's pretty neat. They're just Western cowboy bankers. Right. And it's funny you mentioned stagecoach too, because you're like, wow, this is crazy using dogs to pull sleds. And you think, well, you do it with other stuff. Horses. Yeah. This is using dogs as draft animals. Yeah. Absolutely. That's all. Totally fine. Uh, so they have veterinarians on hand. Um, this article said around 37. <laughs> so weird. I know. There's a little bit of weirdness in this article, Chuck. Uh, but they do have veterinarians on hand to, to examine them during the race, uh, and before the race to make sure they're all healthy. Um, but dogs die. Uh, dogs can die of overexertion. Yeah. Um, they can have trouble catching their breath. They can asphyxiate on vomit. Um, they can, uh, fall through the ice is a big one. As a matter of fact, falling through the ice is not necessarily a death sentence, even when it's negative 40 degrees below. Yeah, sometimes they'll run right out of that thing. Yeah, because they're Alaskan huskies, yeah. right? Um, but there's this very famous story from 1984. There's a Iditarod winner named Susan Butcher, and she won multiple times, but her team in 1984 um, was let out of after falling through ice by yeah. her two lead dogs uh pulled the rest of the team out just like one dog at a time until the whole team had made it out of the ice water amazing and continued on the kept, ice water kept going yeah yeah um and then the next year that same poor lead dog got kicked by a moose and they didn't finish that year i believe it had to recuperate he did it had to recuperate for a year um i believe 144 dogs have died since the first race uh, in the past few years, they haven't had any deaths, but no. generally one or two dogs are going to die. 2009 was a bad year. Um, one of the worst in most recent years, uh, there was like, I think six dogs that died that year. 2000, I think 11 or 12, there was one dog that died, but it died terribly. Um, he died from being asphyxiated by the snow after he was left at a checkpoint by his musher. In yeah. the hands of like the local vets at the checkpoint, and they tied him up, and the weather got bad, and no one brought him in, and he was a snowdrift just built over the dog. He couldn't go anywhere, and he he suffocated. Yeah, in the snow. Um, that that was a big deal. Um, yeah, Pete actually had to apologize. They they condemned the uh, musher. They said that they just left this dog. No, no, like they left him officially. No, I know, but PETA didn't say that. Oh, gotcha. PETA said they just left this dog behind. Get it right, PETA. Uh, and had uh, they were had a lawsuit brought against them, and they came out and, and apologized. Yeah. And said, oh, actually, we know it wasn't on you. You left them in the care of somebody else. Our bad. And they said, uh, the, the person said that the apology was weak. If you're going to agitate, even if it's for animal rights, you, you should agitate correctly. No, agreed. Get your facts straight before you agitate, you know? Like uh, there's enough, there's enough there. Sure. That, oh, yeah. that you can you can get your facts straight and still agitate just as effectively. Yeah, we're talking about dehydration, uh, ulcers, hypothermia, heart problems. And let's talk about those ulcers, Chuck. There was a study from Oklahoma State University um, of a 
a decent number of sled dogs on the Iditarod Trail that um, found a lot of them had anemia because they had stomach ulcers. Yeah. And they were bleeding slowly and developing anemia as a result. And they got stomach ulcers from being fed aspirin and anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil to keep them to going, keep going and keep their joints from hurting. And the the veterinary study suggested that um, the dogs be fed and acids yeah. to combat the ulcers. Yeah. So they're getting, they're being driven a thousand miles, eleven hundred miles over eight days. They're given drugs to keep their joints from hurting. They're getting ulcers from the drugs. They're getting anemia from the ulcers. And this vet study said that they should be given antacids. Yeah. One of the vets, uh, Scott Moore, he was a volunteer for the race a few years ago, said he saw dogs with torn Achilles tendons, dehydration, diarrhea, hypothermia, hyperthermia. Inflammation in the wrist and soreness in the shoulders from the harnesses. Uh, I didn't know much about this. I just saw it on the news every now and then and sure. thought, oh, neat, these working dogs out racing. But um, uh, I'm going to go ahead and say no more Iditarod. Shut it down. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yeah. You're killing dogs for the entertainment of people. I know it's rare, and I know 99% of these mushers really care for these dogs and care for their well-being and do all they can to ensure their safety. But to me, if dogs are dying at all in training in the race after the race, then you just shouldn't do it anymore. Or at the very least, uh, you know, shorten the race or do something to ensure that these dogs don't die ever. So there's, there's a, uh, there's a couple of schools of thought. PETA is very much opposed to the Iditarod and dog sled racing in general. Yes. They're like, just don't hook a dog up to a sled. That's our stance. Now, are they against recreational sledding? They're against all kinds of sledding. Every, okay, that's, every sledding that's what I is. couldn't find if you had like six dogs and you sled it over to your friend's and house like they a were mile your away. family dogs. Yeah. PETA says don't do that. Okay, I thought it was just competition the, racing. The, uh, there's, there's a group called the Sled Dog uh, Action Coalition. Yes. They are opposed to the Iditarod, but they don't have a problem with humane and uh, well-done recreational mushing. Right. Um, the Humane Society of the United States opposed to the Iditarod, but um, is uh, they, they don't have a stance on mushing whatsoever. But PETA it says don't, hook, don't use a dog as a draft animal, even for your own recreation. Um, but if you'll notice, the one common thread is that all these groups are opposed to the Iditarod itself. Yeah. They, they are saying, like, even if you have vets on at every checkpoint, apparently the mushers can um, overrule the vet's ruling. If a vet's like, this dog needs to come out, the musher can be like, get lost. Yeah. And the vet doesn't have any recourse. Um, and that's totally well within the rules. But even if you do have vets looking after them, and even if PETA has successfully promoted change and the Iditarod is credited for really facing up to a lot of the problems sure. uh, that the dogs face and dealing with them and, and having like a very low tolerance for animal cruelty especially yeah um the very fact that you're hooking up animals to a sled and driving them 1100 miles over eight days yeah. is in and of itself to a lot of critics Inhumane. Yeah, for the entertainment of people. Even take that away. For whatever reason, it's it's inhumane. Like, well, t take it away, but it's not like the old days where you needed to deliver the mail or right. serums. Right. I mean, it's purely for entertainment at this point. Or glory. And I know it's tradition, and, and people that are into this are going to say, like, you know, that you can't do anything these days. 
Oh, like, they definitely. Th- this is a proud old tradition. Right. Like, just stay, we've moved to Alaska for a reason. Right. Stay out of my business. Right. Um, and they, they definitely do take that stance for sure. Uh, but that's not to say that mushers are cruel, awful people. By all accounts, most of them are very good to their animals because they want them to perform well. Uh, they are like family to them in most cases. But you still hear mm. about these, uh, terrible things that happen, uh, in the, in the training, and it's not just the race itself. It's the training. It's the the breeders. The, the, the breeders. They'll, they'll they still call animals. There's one guy named uh, Frank Winkler, mm-hmm. two time I did a ride racer. He was charged with 14 counts of cruelty to animals when uh, an animal control officer found a crate of dead and dying puppies in his truck. He said he couldn't afford to take them to the vet, so they'll call the dogs. Like if you have a deformity, if you're just not good enough, oh yeah, they will still kill. That's what culling means. All right. Kill the puppies, and they don't cull them by injecting them with, um, you know, sodium pentothal or well, um, gassing them. A lot of them, a lot of kennels, even like professional kennels, um, will shoot them. And the Iditarod committee—that's that's within their rules. Like you can shoot a a, a dog to cull it. Culling's fine, and how you cull it um, is okay. Apparently, beating a dog to death is not really acceptable. But, well, that's what Frank Winkler did. But for yeah, he did. He With shot an some, handle. and then I guess he ran out of bullets and started using an axe handle. Yeah. And he was an Iditarod racer. Um, and that's a problem with the kennels, that there are a lot of kennels out there that uh, don't treat their dogs very well. They don't feed them enough. They treat them fairly and humanely. And just the very fact that they cull dogs that aren't good enough is is um, reprehensible to a lot of people. Yeah, me included. Uh, at the U.S. Uh and I want to say, lunatic. and me too. Like I think this is, I, I there's a there's a there's a part of me that I'm like, I, this is not my thing. That's up in Alaska, but dogs belong to humanity. Well, yeah, it's like when we did the bullfighting thing. Like, yeah. you can take your tradition and stick it where the sun doesn't shine. Yeah. And again, culling isn't something that all breeders do, all kennels do. Uh, many of the dogs now that aren't capable are adopted out to loving families, which is great. But culling is still a part of the culture in some kennels. Right. Uh, the U.S. Crab Lunic Kennel in Aspen, Colorado, uh, say that as many as 35 dogs have been killed annually by gunshot to the head. And the manager said, you know, culling dates back hundreds of years. It's nothing new. It's part of the circle of life for this dog sled dog. <laughs> the circle of life. The nine millimeter of the brain is part of the At circle of life. Eight weeks old. So, um, yeah. Wow. It's part of the circle of life, huh? That's what he said. And so, Chuck, a lot of this stuff is reserved for the Iditarod specifically and the kennels that supply dogs for the Iditarod. Yeah. But just having a sled dog in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Or even using a dog for a sled dog is not necessarily a bad thing. I don't think I take a hard line as PETA, maybe. Like, if you want to recreationally mush... Uh, there is a long, great history of it. I have no problem with it because these dogs do love to run. Uh, they love to pull, and that's their job. But I just can't get behind endurance racing if these dogs are being injured or if they die from it. It's just my opinion. I know a lot of people disagree. Uh, we don't put opinions in here much. But one argument I don't want to hear is that we should shut down all endurance racing for humans in because humans can get injured and die. The key difference here is humans have free will, and they elect to do so. A uh, big difference between animals and humans. Uh, it's just not a comparison I think you should make. Okay. Well, if you want to know more in the meantime about the Iditarod, you can go watch it. You can go to Iditarod.com, I believe, and 
track the racers. Um, and you can also read how the Iditarod works on How Stuff Works by typing those words in the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. And uh, since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. Hey, guys. I'm a registered dietitian. I realize I spent a lot of my day tech, uh, talking about the three things in my email title, which was poop. Uh, I listened to the poop podcast on the way to work today and really enjoyed it. As someone who regularly discusses poop and digestion, it's great to hear it on a podcast. Uh, also, I think you guys should do a breastfeeding episode. Breastfeeding is super fascinating. Uh, so thanks for being great in-car entertainment. Uh, I came across this gem of a conversation a few years back because uh, you guys were asking for different names for taking a poop. And she said, someone had written, name your poop after a movie on a bathroom wall. And of course, a plentiful list ensued. And here are some of my favorites. Uh, the Great Escape. And by the way, we heard from a lot of people. We did. So great names. Uh, Children of the Corn. <laughs> the Exorcist. Uh, Operation Dumbo Drop. <laughs> uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I don't get that one. I, don't, I didn't get the Exorcist either. Uh, Rosemary's Baby. Not bad. It's okay. Uh, the Hurt Locker. <laughs> That's terrible. Uh, mud. Gross. Yeah. Apocalypse Now. Not bad. Uh, Easy Rider. <laughs> and There Will Be Blood. Gross. So gross. So uh, the first part, this is actually two emails. The first part was from uh, Sarah. Uh, and then the poop movies was from Reed. Sarah, I don't want you to be associated with that at What all. was Sarah saying then? Just she was the one that said that uh, that breastfeeding would be good, and she's a dietitian and she talks a lot about poop. So uh, We should do a breastfeeding one. Again, it's going to be a hornet's nest, but we could do it. Sure. We just have to research it, because there's no article on how stuff works, I think, about it. It's worthwhile. Okay? Sounds good. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us in the meantime, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 